This is Laura Gassner-Odding, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, Well, my name is Laura Gassner-Odding, and I help leaders get unstuck. (laughs) So, okay, that's an incredibly broad statement, and what's funny about that... what on earth does that mean? (laughs) Right, right, right. But but what's funny about that is with your history, you might actually be someone who can can live up to that broadness, if if that makes sense. But yeah, let's start with there. What on earth does that mean? Well, lots of leaders are leaders because they've got a great idea, and they had that idea first, or they were able to execute on that idea first, which ipso facto, puts them in the lead. Um, What they find as they're out in the lead is that the thing that made them get out there, the creativity, the innovation, the the, the courage, uh, gets them out there all by themselves. And they are then overwhelmed by the courage and the innovation and the creativity. And they have lots of other ideas. And uh, they get in their own way. And sometimes you just need to sit down with somebody and have that conversation, that one-on-one conversation with them where you ask them the tough questions about what they were really looking to do, where they were really wanting to go, what they really wanted to accomplish. And sometimes they find that they've gotten so busy with all of the stuff that they forgot the long-term plan and the picture and the change that they wanted to make in the world and their community and their company and their nonprofit and their family. And so I act really as a member of the kitchen cabinet, as the friend in the foxhole, as that one person is going to tell you the truth and ask you that tough question that really gets you back on the right track and gets you moving and not mired in the stuff any longer. So I help leaders get unstuck Hmm. in that way. Yeah, no, that that's there's a there's a ton there to sort of unpack because we have systems issues, we have uh, leadership and vision ADHD, uh, etc. I I think though let's let's dive into you've been doing this in a variety of different fields, right? So you've been doing this in government, in nonprofit, in for profit, etc. You've been helping leaders get unstuck in a variety of different places. Let's let's just start there for those that that have never heard of you. Let's 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 unpack your background and and just how many ways you've seen leaders get unstuck. <laughs> Well, you'd have to start with me as the first person who I helped get unstuck. I wasn't quite a leader at the time, but I originally thought I was going to be the first great United States senator from the state of Florida. And I had uh, had a whole plan. I was going to graduate early from college. I was going to make law review at a prestigious institution. I was going to have a short but spectacular tenure in the DA's office, putting away the bad guys. And 
then I realized I hated law school and I really was not all that interested in anything that the professors had to teach me from their case books. And I wasn't really all that compelled by any of my classmates. And I realized that I was much more interested in helping people connect with what really drove them, why they were doing something, not what they were accomplishing or how they were accomplishing it. And I dropped out of law school and I did that because I heard Bill Clinton, then a governor from, you know, tiny southern state with negligible electoral prowess, talking about this idea of service, of service really in pursuit of a solution, rather than just how am I going to make myself feel good for being part of the solution. And I dropped out of law school, uh, I joined the campaign, and I ended up working in the office that created the AmeriCorps program. So this idea that I heard him talk about, about service in exchange for college tuition, led to the creation of one of his hallmark proposals, which was the AmeriCorps program. And through that program, I helped uh, service organizations figure out how to do real service in their communities and scale nationally. When it came time to uh, get back on the campaign trail again, my then mentor, uh, really a, 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 a father figure and mentor in my life, uh, broke the news to me that I was not quite a big enough deal to do something really important on the campaign, but I was a little bit too old to get back on the campaign bus and eat cold pizza and sleep on high school gymnasium floors. And uh, he told me I should go talk to a friend of his who was a headhunter. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I don't really know what that job is. But it turns out that you can ask people all sorts of personal questions. You could figure out what drives them. You can judge them for a living. And you can help them connect their purpose and their passion in a way that they're really changing the world in a way that they want. And it seemed like the perfect job for me. Now, that's the story I tell now. At the time, what I knew was that my then boyfriend, now husband, was about to move to Boston, and that job happened to be in Boston. And so I took the job, really not knowing what a headhunter did. But it turns out that one of the things that I think leaders uh, have that not a lot of other people do is the sort of blind faith sometimes, that there's this gut feeling that energy moves in a certain direction. And when things are consonant, when everything's sort of moving in that same direction together, it works out and it might not be the plan that you put in pen, but it's the plan that's there in pencil. There's sort of a general direction that you want to take in your life when you move forward. And so that's what I did. I became a headhunter. I worked for, uh, uh, at that firm for five years. I learned how to do the work the best that I think anybody in the country does it. And then I had this moment of rage where I realized I could actually do this differently and I think maybe better and with more authenticity and oh my gosh, more profit than this firm is doing it. And I walked out, I had a Jerry Maguire moment. I walked out, you know, it was like fishbowl in hand and I'm out of here. And I started my own firm and I spent 15 years doing this work in a slightly different way that was um, not seen before by the nonprofit sector and really changed the way a lot of nonprofits expected professional service to be done um, in, in, in the sector itself, which uh, I'm proud of because, as you know, lots of nonprofits sort of they take what they are given and they don't think to demand more. And so I think we really help nonprofits think differently about how they go about um, talent, how they go about looking for talent, how they go about even just working with professional services firms. And then about 10 years into it, I realized that um, I needed to do something different, that the firm had grown to such a place and the industry had moved in such a way that the firm needed a different kind of leadership than the leadership that I brought. And I turned to my business partner and I told her I was looking for a five-year plan. 
and I counseled myself out of the job. And then for the last year and a half, um, I have been working individually one-on-one with leaders, whether they're politicians, whether they're philanthropists, whether they're nonprofit leaders or corporate leaders, and helping them think about what they want to do and how to get them unstuck in a way that gets them to be much more effective and efficient. Hmm. So I, I think there's a couple things there. Um, to sort of unpack, there's really, uh, well, really, there's three amazing transitions. Uh, the first, I think, is that wonderful transition that happens when the pencil and paper, or excuse me, the pen plan, law school to DA's office to state senator to senator, etc., um, bores you to tears, and you have to go back to the emotional one. But but really, you know, the thing that, that I've seen is, um, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is to talk about, I think there's a lot of people, especially in 2016, I think there's a lot of people who have amazing executive abilities are in the for-profit sector and are just as bored as you were in law school, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a sort of a lack of that emotional part of it that, that drove you to want to work for Bill Clinton's office uh, and then and then later sort of drove you, well, I mean, the whole boyfriend going to Boston thing kind of helped, but drove you to- There was passion to, there too. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, let's, let's start there, I, I guess with- what do you, because you come at it from two different angles. First, you've got to have the conversations with the prospective leaders who are going to transition into nonprofit, but then you've also got to um, talk to the, the nonprofit firms and say, like, there, there are more, you don't have to settle. But let's start with the individual leader. What are some of the things that you do to sort of encourage them? You're feeling this tug towards uh, a greater call to service. How do you kind of manage that transition from profit to uh, purpose, let's say? Well, the first thing I do is I ask them why they want to make a change. There are so many people that are making a switch from the for-profit to the nonprofit world, but they're all doing it for different reasons. And nonprofits, less so now than several years ago, but still quite often will look at people coming from the for-profit world with a little bit of a dubious eye. They think anybody coming from the corporate world is the same, which is the same as somebody from the corporate world saying all nonprofits are alike. And frankly, that's like saying Starbucks International is the same as the the mom and pop coffee shop on the corner, right? Both sell coffee, but they're going to be completely different places. So I talk to people that are coming out of the for-profit world about why they're looking to make this change. Some of them are the the children of Martin Luther King and JFK, and they're of that boomer generation where they're just, they're, they're at that point and they want to give back and they have this um, righteous indignation that was seeded in them long, long, long ago, but which took a backseat to needing to pay the mortgage and sending their kids to college and taking care of their aging parents. Um, some of them are people in the middle of their career who are just finding that they're, they're, they're not... Um, having enough time to balance you know, the sandwich generation between their parents and their kids. And it's just, is this all there is, right? Is this all there is? And, and, I, and I'd like something more out of this life. A lot of them are people who are younger, who are even millennials, who have spent a few years in the for-profit sector and who are realizing that their friends in the nonprofit sector are actually doing work at a higher level than they may be because in the nonprofit sector, there are just so many fewer individuals per task that has to get done. So you end up, instead of having a director of operations and a director of finance and a director of HR and a director of technology, you may just have a deputy director who's in charge of all of those things. Um, So a lot of people will leapfrog back and forth from one sector to the other and really find themselves moving further ahead of their peers. So people change for lots of different reasons. It could be career advancement. It could be passion and purpose. It could be um, any one of a number of reasons, but each one of them are so individual 
to themselves at a different point in their career at a different point in their life. So, uh, you know, you mentioned something that, that uh, really struck me as interesting, which is in these different reasons. I feel like often, though, for the the people that start out in the for-profit sector, you, you know, you had said the, the baby boomers who always sort of wanted to stick it to the man, but also had to pay bills and now have to pay for their age. I feel like a lot of times there's this sense that like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a career in the corporate world and then I'm going to hang up my reins. I retire early and then I'm going to go to work, you know, immediately to the executive director of a nonprofit sort of <laughs> position, et cetera. Um, I, so it kind of just makes me want to ask, how's that actually working out? That seems to be a lot of people in the for-profit sector's <laughs> plan, but I've never actually had the chance to ask someone from the nonprofit perspective. Are those the people you're actually looking for or are they the people, like you said, that are kind of weaving a career back and forth? Well, this is when I get to give you the answer that I would have been able to give you had I completed law school. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> no, if I think you're supposed to, I think you're supposed to answer my question with a question, right? Isn't that the law school? That way? is the law school way. Um, and and we could, I could talk for much longer than your show is because you'd be paying me by the hour. <laughs> instead, I will um, say there actually are a lot of themselves reform lawyers who are moving into the nonprofit sector. I'm just a reform law student, uh, so it's interesting. Uh, when you talk to people in the nonprofit sector, they will say. If I talk to one more person coming out of corporate America who just wants to give back, I'm going to tell them to write a check. That's not really something that people from the nonprofit sector love to hear. What they would rather hear is, I've spent my career in the corporate world. These are the skills that I have amassed. This is the kind of environment in which I work well. And this is, and here is an issue always been interesting to me. So um, that may be because I've always, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I came from nothing and I, and I built myself into what I am because of access to education. It could be I had a kid with a certain diagnosis. It could be, you know, this major life catastrophe just happened. And now I'm thinking about this in a whole new way. But there always has to be some sort of reason that they have. But what I tell people to do when they're thinking about that transition is, number one, think about what is the, the, the issue? What is the change that you want to see in the world, that problem that you just can't wait another day to help solve, right? So the first thing you have to do is decide, is it domestic violence? Is it, um, uh, uh, is it, uh, is it uh, social justice uh, around reproductive rights? Is it um, uh, care for animals? Is it the environment? What is the thing that, that you care about? And it doesn't have to necessarily be one thing, but you at least have to know what you don't care about. So it may be that you care more about um, uh, about voting rights than you care about the environment, but at least you've got to have some sort of ballpark. That's the first thing to do. The second thing to do is to think about what sort of environment you do best in. So do you like to be in a place where all the systems are put together and it's very structured and you know exactly what's happening at Monday at 10 a.m. and Friday at 4 p.m.? That may be that you want to be in a large institution like the United Way, for example. Are you somebody who likes to be in an environment where it's all hands on deck and everybody's moving forward and, 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 and failure is not an option? Maybe you want to be in a startup or uh, an organization that is scaling. Um, then you have to think about what are the skills that you have that you've amassed that will transition to the nonprofit sector. And this is where a lot of people make a mistake because they don't necessarily have to be skills that you've gotten in your nine to five job. So say, for example, you're um, a member of a committee in your place of worship or you're active in your kid's PTA or, you, you know, you've always done a little bit of fundraising for a cause that you've cared about or you sit on a board even better. Those are the skills, too, just as you weren't paid to 
amass those skills doesn't mean you don't have them, doesn't mean they don't have value. And so you can think about the job that you've had and the skills that you've had and the work that you've done outside and what will transition. And if you think about those three things as the first three sort of mental steps to take, that's really a great way to start your roadmap into making this transition. I think that's great advice because, you know, to, to speak to the, well, so first of all, I kind of have a problem with the idea of give back in general because it implies that you took too much to begin with <laughs> instead of just wanting to be helpful. But I think you're right. I think a lot of people do it because there is sort of a, um, a, a brand associated with this is how for-profits operate. This is how nonprofits operate. One is saintlier than the other. And therefore, when I am done in the less saintly one, I, I'll go do my penance or something like that. And so it's the mere fact that it is a nonprofit that is the sort of appealing nature to a lot of people instead of it being the actual mission of the organization. And, you know, what's interesting to me, at least in, in 2017, is that the lines are becoming so blurred with social entrepreneurship, with nonprofits being encouraged to act more like for-profits and for-profits being encouraged to act with more soul like a nonprofit, right? These lines are so blurred that I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think it does come down to what is the, the mission that actually drives you, the emotional piece that is sort of serving as your North Star, and then what are your skills that you have uh, adapted and and those things offer far better advice for whether or not you should even make this transition than anything else. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And there are nonprofits who are run by people who all have MBAs from top tier Ivy League schools that feel very corporate, and there are companies that feel not very corporate and not very buttoned down. And so it really depends on the, the very specific environment in which you work. And so for people who are transitioning from the for-profit sector, looking at an organization where lots of the board members have MBAs or have corporate backgrounds, where lots of the staff members have uh, MBAs or corporate backgrounds, will be much easier transition. I think if you're looking at an organization where everybody's a social worker and they're spending all day long working with the clients that they're serving, somebody who's going to come in and talk about how they make data-driven decisions based on a met metrics-filled dashboard is not, and there's going to be organ rejection there, and that's not going to work. It doesn't mean that that person is not a good candidate. They're just the wrong candidate for that organization. There are almost 2 million nonprofits out there, so there is a nonprofit for everybody, but it's thinking about where the money comes from, what kinds of people are in the organization, both at the board and staff. Um, a nonprofit that's supported by a community foundation will feel very different than a nonprofit that's being supported by, um, uh, you know, somebody who's made their money in the dot-com universe. So it really is, it's really about finding the right place because there is a place for everyone. I do love what you say, though, about how uh, giving back in title, it, 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 it implies that you took too much to begin with and that you're doing your penance. The, um, the history of the nonprofit sector is actually quite, fascinating. Um, I live in Massachusetts and uh, on the boat, literally on the boat coming from England, a man by the name of John Winthrop gave a sermon as they were coming to Plymouth Rock about how charity is the penance that one pays for doing well, for making money. So if the Puritans cared about anything, <laughs> they cared about two things. They cared about making money and going to heaven. And so they were so passionate about making money that they had to figure out how to get to heaven. And John Winthrop talked, he gave a sermon about this idea that charity is the penance you pay for becoming rich. And not only that, in Massachusetts, we loved it so much that we made him the second, the sixth, the ninth, and the twelfth governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. <laughs> it turns out that guilt is really good for business. So we have this entire nonprofit sector that's built on this idea of guilt and people needing to pay a penance. 
It also happens to then be built on this idea that we're going to celebrate people for how much money they give rather than how much impact they're actually making. And so you have a nonprofit sector that's built on this idea that overhead is bad, that investing in resources is bad, that investing in talent is bad. Anything that's going to take away from the bottom line of what goes to the people or the causes you're serving is bad. And that's very difficult for somebody coming out of the corporate for-profit world because they spend, there are actual line items on their budget about how to, how to develop your staff and how to grow your talent and how to invest in improving your systems. And that's something that not every nonprofit and most importantly, not every nonprofit donor has really internalized and, and, and appreciated. And so for somebody coming from the for-profit to the nonprofit world, finding a nonprofit that gets that that invest in that way, that has supporters that appreciate that they actually invest in improving systems and improving people will be a much easier and better transition. Yeah, yeah. And there's there is a there's a ton here that we could unpack. I feel like without inviting Dan Pilata to the conversation though, maybe we don't go down <laughs> this alley because I'm sure he would have a ton to say on that as well. A lot to I, say on that. Right, yeah, exactly. Um uh, yeah, I, I remember I shared uh I shared the stage, which is a term we're not supposed to use as speakers, but with Dan at one point and we had a whole sort of long dinner conversation. This is definitely an area for him. And I, but I think you're right in the realm of um, talent in particular and developing in talent and, and all of those sort of things are seen as kind of secondary. I think too, when it comes to talent, like here's my weird thing is, and this is sort of my way to pivot back from nonprofit to the for-profit world. Cause there's lessons there too. You know, one of the interesting things with the nonprofit world is when it comes to talent, even if they're paid, there's usually such a below market rate that we almost consider everyone a volunteer. What's interesting is I feel like, especially at the top tiers of talent, it doesn't matter what sector you're in, you know, profit, for-profit, nonprofit, public sector, et cetera. If you are in that top tier of talent, you are a volunteer, no matter where you sort of are. And so how, as a leader, you engage with followers, especially your most talented ones, in a weird way, I think it's actually kind of uniform across the board. There is no, this sector has to learn from this sector. Keeping talent, retaining talent that has freedom of mobility in 2017 is a big deal no matter what sector you're in. I, I couldn't agree more. It's so true. When, when I was recruiting when I was recruiting leaders, I, we would always start off by uh, talking to anybody who was doing really interesting stuff in that sector, right? It, 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 we didn't start off by thinking, who, who can I poach? We were thinking, who's really thinking on the, on the cutting edge? Who's on the vanguard? And we'd call them up and we'd talk to them about who they thought was interesting and on the cutting edge and on the vanguard. And eventually, you'd amass you know, 20 or 30 great people that you would talk to about this organization and who they're looking for in their next CEO and the direction that they were going. And people would start to say, huh, that's really interesting because, and you would hear them say things about maybe the chair of the board, maybe the new strategic direction, maybe the skills that you'd have to uh, amass in order to, to, to lead the organization, something about new geographical uh, terrain. There were all sorts of reasons why a job would be interesting to somebody. And one of these great thinkers who was not looking, we always say everyone's looking, they just don't know it yet. But one of these really interesting people who wasn't looking, but suddenly had a little light turned on in their head about this organization and its direction became interested. And there were about eight different factors. Some of them I've already mentioned. Money was only one of them. And for most people, money was never the top reason. Frankly, if you're hiring somebody because money is the top reason, you're probably not hiring the right person. Uh, so, you know, somebody who would be interesting because of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the breadth of the um, 
of the mission, of the skills that they're going to get, the, the the rest of the talent leadership landscape around them. Those are the folks that really were invested in the long term. And and I would hazard a guess that that, that is sector agnostic. Hmm. No, I I would agree with you. I think it, it bears an interesting lesson for you know, so many programs that are are essentially tapping law school graduates and MBA, you know, business school graduates and offering lots of money and repaying student loans and, you know, all of the reasons that aren't one of the good reasons. But, you know, that's a, that again is a sort of a different episode, a whole other diatribe. And I mean, you can, can get down. them, but you can't keep them. And right. you certainly won't get the best out of them while they're there. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. I want to sort of talk about an, another transition too, and this is this is less in the the nonprofit sector, but again, sort of speaks to this idea that that there's a lot of times where people get stuck, and then a lot of transitions. And this is the other part of your story that you mentioned when we sort of began is that you saw the need to create a five year plan to transition out of your own business which I imagine was not this uh, wonderful, masterful thing. I mean, you gave yourself a long enough time horizon, but I'm sure there were sticking moments and pivot points that had to happen and realizations, et cetera. Talk about that transition sort of out of leadership, whether that's nonprofit or for-profit, et cetera. I think for a lot of people, for a lot of leaders, learning how to exit the stage with grace is almost as important as learning how to be the center of the stage. I will say it's one of the hardest things I've ever And um, I had spent the previous 20 years working with organizations to talk about succession planning and transitions. So I, uh, there were, the stakes were high because it was both my legacy. It was the longest tenure I'd ever spent doing anything professionally. And most of everybody I know knows me associated with it. So the, 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 the successful transition was important both for my legacy, but also because it was my reputation. I mean, if I couldn't do that, what was I doing for the previous 20 years? So, you know, small stakes, <laughs> not, not a lot was riding on it. Uh, but I, you know, I woke up one day and I realized that for the previous 10 years, I had been leading a firm that, 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 that was dedicated to finding the best leaders for the best nonprofits in our country, but was also dedicated to changing the way that this work was done. That rather than just charging one third of the first year's cash comp, period, we would actually look at how complex the work was. Finding a director of development for a local domestic violence shelter is much harder than finding a head of strategy for a major international foundation. The, the, the jobs are different, but there are just more people who are interested in that bigger job, right? There's more resources they could throw at them. It's just a bigger, it's a bigger deal. You, you get a lot more attention. And so why should that bigger job give you, you know, 14 times the fee of the smaller job? It just felt outsized and wrong to me. Um, so we really changed the way that, that, that we were doing this work. And slowly but surely picked off, you know, the next generation of leadership of other larger firms, because we were doing this in a way that both um, provided our clients with with a, a fee that made more sense to them and also allowed us because we were a virtual firm, really before virtual firms were a thing, um, to pay our people better than they were getting in, 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 in the larger firms. And so um, we, it took a leader who needed to be out there and, and rallying the troops and being a, 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 an ambassador, really a proselytizer for the way that this work should be done in a way that was, you know, righteously indignant, like nonprofits deserve better and we should give it to them. And if we're not, then what are we doing in this business? And after about seven or eight years, we 
we spawned, you know, we spawned a lot of competitors, which told me we were doing things right. We picked off a lot of the, you know, next generation of leadership from other firms, which told me we were doing something right. And we spent some time kind of running the engine and seeing how fast we could make it go. And we, you know, grown the firm about 100% every year for the first 10 years. Um, but I woke up about eight years into it. And I thought, you know, I can keep innovating and changing and growing. But I don't know that that's what this firm needs. And I don't know if it's what the sector needs. I think the people in this firm who are phenomenal at the work they do, really just want to do the work. They needed somebody who wasn't the external proselytizer, who was thinking, where's this market going to be 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, but who was really geeked out with them about the art and the science of the work itself, thinking about this week, this month, these six months. And that wasn't me. It's like the big secret is that I actually never really loved search. Hmm. It hmm. was just, I liked, I liked working with the clients. I liked understanding where they're going. I liked helping them solve their problem again, helping them get unstuck. But the actual work of search never turned me on in a way that was kind of masked by the running of the business itself. The excitement and the interest and the puzzle of running the business distracted me from the fact that I liked it, but I didn't love the actual work of what we were doing. I was good at it, but I wasn't great at it the way that the people in my firm were great at it. And I woke up one day and I realized it's not fair to them for me to keep being in charge of a firm that needs a different kind of leader. And it's not fair to the sector and the clients that we're serving. And I could have mailed it in for the next five, 10 years. I could have kept doing what I was doing and been a good enough leader, but it just, I, I started experiencing dissonance, right? I talked about consonants earlier. I started experiencing dissonance where my energy wasn't with the rest of my people. And I started feeling lonely. And I realized that the only way to solve that problem was to give them the kind of leader that they deserved. Now, I was lucky in that the woman who came on several years into the, the, the firm's development happened to be exactly that person. Who, she was my, my, my business partner. She happened to be exactly that person. And so I called her up one day and I told her um, that I needed a plan. I needed a five-year plan. And that sort of started a chain of events, which I think can probably be closest aligned with the, the cycles of grief. Hmm. You know, there was <laughs> denial, then there was negotiation, there was a little blame, um, and, and then there was acceptance. <laughs> so we sort of went through all of it, and it took a long time. Um, I was surprised by how emotional the whole process was. Hmm. Um, you know, and the interesting thing, if we're going to use the stages of, of grief, is there's also like giving it up. Right. And the moment, like, I don't think acceptance actually happens until that moment where, oh, it's the first, it's the first day back, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and, and what I thought was the, the most interesting of it. Um, so there was, a, you know, it was a five year plan. Um, and she and I kept the plan to ourselves for, you know, almost four of those years. We brought a couple external consultants in, but we oh, no, that's really interesting. That's yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 uh, at the time that I had made the decision, the firm still felt a little bit like a cult of personality, you know, mm. externally, internally, it's still, you know, people thought of it as Laura's firm. Um, the, 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 the business partner who was running it with me was running it, but she was much more behind the scenes at, at that point, even though she was 
doing much more than she was getting credit for because it's still, you know, the firm was still, you know, this iconoclastic um, way of doing things. And so we need, just needed a big, a big face. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 it took a long time before she and I were ready, where she and I had come to a place where we had an agreement about how we wanted to move things forward. You know, professional services firms are really funny in that way. It's not like selling a business that's known for something, a product. You know, if you're selling a business that's known for the people, the people are the product. And so we had to make sure that she and I had our ducks in a row so that we could make sure that she could keep the product, all the rest of our people there as well. Hmm. No, I th- I think that's an interesting one, and um, you know, it, it's sort of it's it's one of those things in it because I think one of the other things, in addition to sort of that overhead um, idea, is one of the other trends is towards transparency, and that yet there are times where cluing in everybody on exactly what's going on from day one is not in everyone's best interest. It, it was absolutely it would not have been in everyone's best interest, and I had to actively start taking a back seat. I had to actively start giving other people the spotlight um, so that they could not feel as though everything depended on me. Hmm. You know, it's uh, we, it's my, my partner and I used to, used to laugh about, you know, they had this sort of 1950s marriage where I was dad and she was mom. Like I was bringing in all the money, right? I was, I was selling the work and she was the one who was making sure that the kids were you know, like I was, I was bringing home the groceries and she was the one who was making sure everybody was, you know, scrubbed and cleaned and sitting at dinner, right, when the food was ready. Um, and, and so by the time, by the time I was ready to, to, to go, everybody in the firm was selling all of the business. But it took me really subsuming my ego of needing to be the winner, needing to be the one who was out in front, to letting other people um, start stepping into that role and then really owning it on their own. I knew that they could do it, but they didn't necessarily have the confidence that I had because I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I, in the beginning of the firm, I thought that everybody who worked there was an entrepreneur because we were you know, hurtling through space in this unknown trajectory and we didn't know if we'd succeed or not. And it took me a while to realize that not everybody who works in an entrepreneurial endeavor is an entrepreneur. They like being around entrepreneurs. They're excited by the idea, but they themselves are not entrepreneurs. And it took time to develop the people in the firm that are in leadership positions to become their own entrepreneurs because they were so used to me being the one who was entrepreneurial. And, you know, if if, if Laura thinks we can do it and she's the biggest risk taker of all and it always works out, then of course we can do it. And they really had to start trusting themselves and trusting their own voices. And it, 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 there was time, and we were definitely not transparent about this, where, where Catherine, my, my business partner, and I were actively putting people in a role where we were grooming them for something that they didn't know was coming. And that was really hard. I mean, I felt like I was keeping secrets from some of my closest friends for a while. It was, it was pretty tough. But it took a long time for her and I to negotiate our own agreement before we could do that. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you were to say from the outset, oh, you, you all, you know, staff, you all need to learn this because I'm leaving. That's a whole different thing than designing a development plan for them to where you're almost being redundant becomes a foregone conclusion. So that when you get to that moment of like, oh, and by the way, I'm transitioning out, it's kind of like, okay, we'll survive. We'll be good. And it's an interesting thing because I had to both become redundant and also unnecessary so, uh, and also I, the founder and you know leader of the firm, right? 
Right. And so, you know, I remember I left because the firm no longer needed the kind of leadership that I provided. And so I, I had to become redundant, but they also had to see that I was no longer necessary. And so it was tough to be in a place where I would active, I, I would have to say to people, well, I don't really know that I can, I don't really know that you need my help in this meeting. I don't really know that I can add any value. Like I had to really reduce some of the, the, the perception of value that I would have because it was muscle memory for them to call me into high level meetings. Uh, but I left the firm because the firm didn't need what I had to bring. And when we made the announcement that I was leaving, the first reaction some of the team had was, well, how are we going to fill your shoes? Catherine can't fill your shoes. And I would say to them, she can't because she's a much different type of leader than I am. But she shouldn't because the firm needs her leadership style, not my leadership style. Yeah, that's such that's such an interesting process and so many lessons to draw out there about about. Uh, you know, drawing drawing out new skills in people to make yourself redundant, also helping people pivot uh, to the point where they're necessary. There's there's a ton there to unpack. In in the time that we have left, though, I want to pivot from from them, from the firm, from uh, the leaders that you have found and placed, uh, you know, around the the country right. to to you specifically, and ask you a couple questions. It's been an amazing journey. In that journey, the first question I want to ask you is, what's the best advice you've ever received in your career? Well, it's the best advice I've ever received, both personally and professionally, is somebody telling me, you're just not that important. <laughs> you don't always have to be at the center of everything that's going on. In fact, if you are at the center of every single thing that's going on, you're either micromanaging or you're not building a community, a business, a family that's strong enough to withstand you being absent for a little while. There's you a, shouldn't be the sun in the solar system. There is an entire leadership curriculum right there. Well, again, we don't have time to unpack. Um, what's an ideal workday look like for you, especially now, now that you've transitioned out, et cetera? What's an ideal workday look like for you? Well, what I'm trying to do, and I'm failing miserably at, is I'm trying to package my day so that I'm doing the writing and the thinking and the advising in sections as opposed to going back and forth. Right now, because I'm suddenly without structure, I'm finding myself moving from one to another, and there's exhaustion in the switching back and forth. So an ideal workday looks like a really tough workout in the morning, some time writing in the middle of the morning when I'm really creative after that workout, um, and then starting the advising and the talking to people midway through the afternoon, and then probably sometime around four, picking up my kids and spending time with them. And again, putting the phone away, not having to answer email all the time because I'm not that important <laughs> to every single person in every single minute. Love it. What are you reading right now? Um, I was just handed a book the other day by Tracy Kidder called A Truck Full of Money that is the story of Paul English who founded Kayak and then sold it for a couple billion dollars. About for, how a, he's for a truck trying, full of money, yeah. For a truck full of money. How he's trying to um, capture new and interesting and big ideas but not be distracted by them and really make um, a difference and impact where he can leverage um, his resources that are it's not just a tsunami coming at it, but it's actual strategic investment. Interesting. Interesting. What do you believe that most people don't? Uh, the old Buddhist expression that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Hmm. So I... <laughs> It reminds I, – I just have to interject on this one. I tell a lot of my students the uh, the same thing uh, in a similar domain. It, I tell them about the first time I ever took a yoga class in which 
the yoga instructor said there's no pain in yoga and then if you've ever done it you know there's a lot um, of pain there's in a yoga. lot of pain in yoga but then when you express them and t- say you're in pain they just go no, no no there's there's no pain in yoga there's only sensation if you choose to interpret that sensation as pain that's on you and you you just want to like sort of curse under your breath until you realize that there's a way bigger life lesson in that there absolutely is. I've um, I've run a few marathons, and I tell people that the hardest part of the marathon is miles twenty to twenty six point two, which you know obviously. But at the end of a marathon, you get to that point, and you think, all right, I've been running now for a lot of hours, and I've trained, and I've done this, and my brain is saying you can do this and then the other part of your brain is saying what were you thinking why are you doing this this is you're going to die this is the worst thing ever and there only one of those voices gets to succeed but all you have between mile 20 and mile 26.2 is truth and it's your truth and you figure out what you're made of in that moment and you can either have pain or you can suffer but you do that thing that you think you cannot do, right? To quote Eleanor Roosevelt, and you figure it out in that moment who you are and what you're made of. And I definitely believe that there is pain and there is suffering, but you have to, you get to be the one that chooses. That's really good. So, um, final question: The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. You're someone, especially who is who has been in a leadership role and also found and placed thousands of leaders. In your view, what makes someone a leader? I would say equal parts of curiosity and humility. I love it. And I love the conciseness of it. That was awesome. Laura, this has been such an amazing time together learning about transitions, but also about making yourself irrelevant, which is a huge leadership lesson, um, and also lessons that cross sectors and apply to leaders no matter where you are working. And truthfully, I I mean, I I really do believe that one of the reasons I was so interested in in talking to you is that the best leaders moving forward are going to be in multiple sectors throughout their entirety of their career. So amazing lessons for that. Thank you so much for them. And thank you for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you very much.